We're going to have our Bible reading now, um, and today we're reading from 2 Samuel chapter 9, verses 1 to 13, and it's on page 312 of your Red Bibles. So 2 Samuel chapter 9, starting at verse 1. David asked, Is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba. They called him to appear before David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? Your servant, he replied. The king asked, Is there no one still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? Ziba answered the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in both feet. Where is he? The king asked. Ziba answered, He is at the house of Machiah, son of Amiel in Lodabar. So King David had him brought from Lodabar from the house of Machiah, son of Amiel. When Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honour. David said, Mephibosheth, your servant, he replied. Don't be afraid, David said to him, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will always eat at my table. Mephibosheth bowed down and said, What is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? Then the king summoned Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, I have given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him and bring in the crops so that your master's grandson may be provided for. And Mephibosheth, your grandson of your master will always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, your servant will do whatever my lord the king commands his servant to do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son named Micah and all the members of Ziba's household were servants of Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table and he was crippled in both feet. Well, thank you, Lucy. And thank you, Elias. Let me add my welcome. And uh, it'd be great if you had that passage uh, open in front of you. From a human point of view, you would not have seen anything remarkable at all. But it was an encounter that in God's sovereign plan would change my life forever. I was 12 and a half years old. It was towards the end of what we used to call second year. That's now year eight. 
And hanging around the shores of Lake Windermere with a group from school, I found myself in the presence of somebody the like of whom I had never met before. It was hard to put my finger on what it was about this man that was different. He was somehow unusual, not normal. There was a certain selfless concern for others, a certain inexhaustible patience, particularly with hard people. There was a lack of concern for what others thought about him a habit of going out of his way for the good of others, even at great inconvenience to himself. And I was intrigued. Of course, I'd met nice people before. One or two of the teachers of the school I went to were nice. Even a couple of my friends that I hang out with were almost civilised. I'd grown up in what I considered to be a caring family. But this was something different. This was something deeper. And it was beyond class or culture or upbringing or personality. It was as if something had happened to him to make him like this. And I was intrigued. But then something else happened. Soon after getting to know him... I found myself in the presence of many others like him. It turned out that there was a whole community of people like this in the town where I grew up, with this same outlook on life, this same DNA, this same characteristic selfless concern for others, even at cost to themselves, which struck me as so unusual and so attractive. Despite their flaws, which are also apparent... I found myself drawn to these people, accepted by them, loved by them, amazed at their countercultural lifestyle, humbled by their many acts of selfless generosity, warned by their hospitality, and sometimes shocked and ashamed at how different I was. It felt like I had touched an electric fence or walked through a secret door and I'd stumbled upon an entire kingdom of kindness in the midst of an unkind world. But it was only later that I came to understand it. That same man, his name is Brian, he's now a missionary in the Czech Republic, that same man I had met on the shores of Lake Windermere eventually came to explain it to me, the source of it, the secret of it, the powerful logic of it. And that was the moment I became a follower of Jesus Christ. That was the moment I was taken and introduced to the king of kindness himself. And then I understood that these people were just like me. But they had experienced the extraordinary kindness of God in Jesus Christ. And that had changed everything for them. And it can change us this morning. And I think it can change our world. Well, how is that the case? Well, come back with me to this wonderfully vivid and masterfully written episode in the life of King David in 2 Samuel chapter 9. Because here we get a small glimpse, a kind of a sample of the kindness that 
expands and grows and characterizes the entire kingdom of God. I don't know if they still do this, but there was a time when you could go to Boots and the perfume counter or the aftershave counter, and you could, you could get for free a little sort of glass bottle, a little sample to take home of aftershave or perfume. So you can sort of experiment with it. Is this going to suit? Is this going to be the one for this person you're buying a present for, whatever it is? Well, here is a little free sample in 2 Samuel chapter 9, just a, a tiny one-off event, beautifully written, beautifully constructed, but just a tiny little sample of what I'm going to call the kingdom of kindness, the kindness of Jesus Christ. Well, let's look at it under the three headings you'll see on the sheet. Firstly, we see the king of kindness in verses 1 to 5. To anyone familiar with the general pattern of regime change in the ancient world, the first half of verse 1 would come as no surprise. David asked, is there anyone still left of the house of Saul? In the ancient Near East, kingship passed automatically from father to son. It was something that you inherited. And for this reason, the surviving family of a deposed king would expect nothing less than the wholesale slaughter of his family by the new king. This is how things were done. A new king came to the throne, a new dynasty, and the first task of that new king was to wipe out any potential rivals, anyone with any possible claim to inheritance or any possible loyalty to the old regime. If you were such a person, you would make yourself scarce or find yourself exterminated. This is the cultural expectation. This is normal, no mercy. Add to this the position of extreme strength that we find David in at the beginning of chapter 9. If you're new to this book, let me just tell you that the previous king Saul and his son Jonathan were killed in the battle of Mount Gilboa at the end of 1 Samuel. Saul's commander, Abner, was murdered in 2 Samuel 3. Saul's last surviving son, Ishbosheth, murdered even more brutally in chapter 4. And then last week, we saw David consolidating his power in the region as he swept through the land, north, south, east, and west, decimating his enemies, expanding his empire, subduing his opponents, massing wealth and power and control. Furthermore, all of his strength and all of his power had been given to him by God's hands to cut off his enemies, to give him rest, and peace in the land. That was what God had promised, and that was what God had delivered. So David is in a position of enormous power. He's arrived at a point of uncontested rule in his world. So to begin the next chapter by asking, is there anyone still left of the house of Saul, is exactly what you'd expect someone in David's position to say. Are there any other remaining threats to my security? Is there anyone hiding somewhere in the kingdom who might still be loyal to Saul? Someone who may one day attempt to overthrow me? Someone to whom I need to show my power? But of course, David is not a typical king. We've seen that his kingship has been established by God. 
And therefore, what we're looking at as we look at this little time in ancient Israel 3,000 years ago, we're looking at the kingdom of God in concrete form. Yes, it's an imperfect human political kingdom, but it is nevertheless a real kingdom that foreshadows the kingdom of God that is to come. And if you glance back to 8 verse 15, you'll see two words there that characterize that kingdom. We're told that David ruled in justice and righteousness to describe a human kingdom, a political kingdom, with those two words is astonishing enough. There was no other human kingdom on earth that could truly be described as just and righteous. What a privilege it would have been to belong to a kingdom like that, where evil is punished as it deserves to be, where people are treated fairly, where those who rule do the right thing, where there is no corruption, where there is justice and righteousness. But now we're going to see something else. Now we're going to see another aspect of this justice and righteousness. We're going to see that there is something else caught up in the justice and righteousness of David that is beautiful and rare on the face of the earth. There is kindness in this kingdom of God. Because look how he finishes his question. Verse 1. David asks, Is there anyone left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? It's important to notice that David is not simply wishing to show kindness in a kind of vague, abstract way. He's not virtue signaling, to use a modern idea. He's not having a kindness month. He's not kind of raising a flag on his castle that says, this is the kingdom of kindness. And he's not advocating what people today call random acts of kindness. No, he wants to show kindness to particular people for a particular reason. And that reason is a promise he made some time ago. The immediate background to this is found in the backstory of this story, in his friendship with Jonathan, the deposed king's son. Some of you who were here for the series will remember it, but let me remind you that in 1 Samuel chapter 20, at a time when David was being persecuted by Saul, who was then king, Jonathan, Saul's son foresaw that even though he was Saul's natural successor, God was going to give the kingdom to David. And at that time, just look with me on the screen what Jonathan asked David to do. 1 Samuel 20, verse 14, Jonathan asked David to show me the unfailing kindness of the Lord as long as I live, so I may not be killed, and do not ever cut off your kindness from my family, Not even when the Lord has cut off every one of David's enemies from the face of the earth. And so David made that promise to Jonathan all those years ago. What Jonathan foresaw has now come to pass. David has become king. God has cut off all his enemies from the face of the earth. And now it is time for David to fulfill his vow to Jonathan by not cutting off the last remaining descendants of his family line. But why did David make such a promise to Jonathan in the first place? Why was he so keen to show kindness to Jonathan's descendants? 
Well, quite simply because this is what God had done for him. So that word translated kindness in our Bibles is an important little Bible word. It's the Hebrew word hesed. And it's one of those words that it's just worth mentioning because it doesn't have a direct equivalent in English, but you have to kind of understand it from the whole context of the Bible as it kind of picks up freight throughout the, the story of the Bible. How do we understand this word hesed? It's sometimes translated as steadfast love or loving kindness or unfailing kindness. And it usually refers to extraordinary acts of kindness and extraordinary acts of generosity from somebody who is in a position to give it to somebody who has no claim to it. That's the basic idea. Extraordinary acts of kindness from somebody who is in a position to give it to somebody who has no claim to it. And the New Testament equivalent would be the word grace. The grace which is more than mercy. The grace which is the undeserved love and kindness. That grace that famously caused John Newton to write amazing grace that saved a wretch like me. You get the idea. Someone who can do something for someone who doesn't deserve it. The astonishing, unexpected kindness of God to the undeserving. And that word hesed runs like a a kind of a freight train right through the Bible from beginning to end. And we're going to see at the end of our time where it ends up. Well, as chapter 7 makes clear, it is this kindness that David himself had experienced from God. You may remember, if you were here last week, it was the kindness, as Elias reminded us, that took David from a shepherd boy to be a king. The kindness that actually adopts David to be like a son of God. The kindness that God promised never to take away. And so that is why when David repeats the question in verse 3, notice, he very explicitly states that he is looking for someone to whom he can show the kindness of God himself. This is how it works, and this is something we'll come back to. David has received the kindness of God, and now he will live as somebody who gives the kindness of God to others. That's the simple logic of it. Well, the search for survivors goes out, and a man is found with connections to Saul. Look at verse 2. Now, there was a servant of Saul's household called Ziba. They called him before, to appear before David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba, your servant? He replied. Although a minor character in the story of 2 Samuel, Ziba is going to appear twice more at key points, and each time his motives become a little bit more ambiguous. Even here, there are some small hints in this masterfully written account that he might not be fully trustworthy. And I suspect he resents the kindness David is seeking to show. Note, for example, the rather short greeting, your servant, just one word in the Hebrew. Also notice that there is none of the submissive bowing that we'll see in a moment. Finally, notice the way he answers David's question. Verse 3, the king asks, Is there no one still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? Ziba answered the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in both feet. Now we need to read on to see what's missing here. In chapter 21, we discover that Ziba actually knows more than he is letting on. 
there are actually seven or eight surviving members of Saul's family, which he chooses not to mention here. Instead, for reasons known only to himself, he chooses to mention just one person, Jonathan's son. And notice that he doesn't give his name, which we are only given later. When pressed for details, he reveals that he is living in this place called Lodibar, a place that literally means nowhere or no matter. And then he just tells David one piece of information, he is crippled in both feet. That word crippled, verse 3, shares its root with the word we saw last week for struck or smote, the most prominent word in chapter 8, where David's enemies were struck down. So here is David's last remaining potential enemy, and he's struck in his feet. In other words, here is somebody in the ordinary ways of things who is not worth even thinking about. He's a remnant of Saul's family. He's on the wrong side of history. To be crippled in both feet as a man in this world where you were either a soldier, basically, or a farmer, you'd be helpless, weak, and useless. And even comes from a place called nowhere. He is an utter nobody. He is a nobody from nowheresville with nothing. And in Zeba's account, he doesn't even have a name. He represents here the total failure of the house of Saul. As he himself will put it in a moment, he is just a dead dog. If ever there was a person that a king like David ought to just crush like a green fly on a rose in your garden, you know, you just kind of get them and you crush them between your fingers. I'm sorry if that offends anybody. I'm just just saying one can do that if one wants to. But if ever there was a person in need of the hesed of God, it is this young man. And so, verse 5, David had him brought from Lodibar, from the house of Machir, son of Amiel. And what David gives him is better than anything he could have hoped. The king of kindness gives him, secondly, the promise of kindness in verses 6 to 8. Well, look what happens. When Meshibbethah, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honor. It's not hard to imagine the feeling of terror. Called from his hiding place in relative security, he's brought before the king. We're not told if he's told the reason. He would have heard that David could be ruthless to his enemies. He would expect very little by way of mercy. But David has something else in mind. He has the hesed, the kindness of God to give him. Now notice with me the way this passage is structured. The kindness of God that David gives him is actually right in the middle in verse 7. This is one way the writer, without italics or underlining, can show readers what really matters, right? At the heart of this passage is verse 7. But before we look at it, the narrator prepares us for what we're going to see in three ways. Firstly, I wonder if you notice, as Lucy read, that in the two sections that deal with Ziba, David is referred to repeatedly as the king. Verse 2, the king said to Ziba. Verse 3, the king asked Ziba. Ziba answered the king. Verse 4, the king asked. Then verse 9, the king subbed Ziba, and so on. It's the king, the king, the king. But now in this middle section, the title king is dropped, do you notice? And 
David's first name is used. And this is with someone much younger than Ziba. And it's not too much of a stretch of imagination to imagine David's look of compassion and to soften his voice as he puts himself on first name terms. Secondly, as David speaks, notice he says one single word, the one word that Ziba omitted to mention. Verse 6, David said, Mephibosheth. He gives him back his name. It is the first step of lifting him up. The first step of dignifying somebody, of establishing a relationship. The third thing David does notice is he gives him that great Bible imperative, those three classic words spoken at every turning point in the Bible by men, women, angels, and God himself. The word that Jesus spoke to his disciples from the storm, it is okay, you're safe from your enemies now. Do not be afraid. Well, those three clues prepare us for the heart of the matter in verse 7. Do not be afraid, David said to him, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I'll restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will always eat at my table. David's words to Mephibosheth are the heart of the passage, take us to the heart of the kingdom of God. This is what distinguishes David's kingdom from all other kingdoms. So let's look at it carefully for a moment. Notice that the word David gives to Mephibosheth comes in the form of a promise. This is very important. Because this is the thing that Mephibosheth gets to grasp hold of there and then. Here he is utterly weak and helpless at the complete mercy of this almighty king. But David is a king who keeps his word. He is made, remember, a promise to Jonathan. And so Mephibosheth, in a way, he's now caught up in that promise. Mephibosheth's life and security, his salvation, depends not on something he's going to do for David or his performance or his loyalty or anything like that. His life, his salvation depends on the promise, the covenant that David made with Jonathan. It's a very significant thing, isn't it? So that is all Mephibosheth needs to do to pull himself up from being a dead dog to being honoured in the kingdom, to being safe in the kingdom. He needs to just grasp hold of this promise and hold on to it. In David's promise to Jonathan, Mephibosheth is utterly secure. And the result of this notice is that Mephibosheth adopts the posture he began in verse 6. Then he was bowed by the crushing weight of fear, but now he is bowed in pure astonishment that the kindness of God could come to someone as undeserving as him. Verse 8, Mephibosheth bowed down and said, What is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? This is not false humility. This is a recognition of the grace of God that at once puts him in his place but gives him utter security. But it's no good having a promise if the promise cannot become a reality. 
And in 9 to 13, the promise of David takes concrete and practical form. David is not only someone who wants to keep his word, he is able to keep it. And so in 9 to 13, we see the gift of kindness. Verse 9, then the king summoned Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, I've given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and servants are to farm the land for him and bring in the crops so that your master's grandson may be provided for. The promise now brings with it two very concrete gifts. The first is the gift of land. The land referred to here is not the land of Israel that Saul ruled, but it's his own private land that he and his family uh, used to support themselves when he was alive. If you want a modern equivalent, the Duchy of Lancaster, a swathe of land which is owned by the queen as a private estate for her own private income, separate to the land owned by the crown. So if the queen, for some reason, stopped being the queen, she would still be the Duke of Lancaster. She would still own that land. And this is what David is now giving to Mephibosheth here. As we see in verse 9, it's more than a little back garden. It's going to take Ziba's considerable household to farm. And owning this land means that Mephibosheth can now have an income, he can have security, he can raise a family, which is pretty good for someone crippled in both feet in those times. That's the first gift. But as if that were not enough, now David gives him something even more precious. Verse 10, And Mephibosheth, grandson of your master, will always eat at my table. Notice that the significance of this is underlined by the fact that that phrase is repeated no fewer than four times in the passage. Verse 7, you will always eat at my table. Verse 10, he will always eat at my table. Verse 11, Mephibosheth ate at the king's table like one of the king's sons. And verse 13, Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table. The narrator is really bothered, isn't he, that that we notice this. Repetition is a great tool for emphasis. He wants us to stand back in amazement. Mephibosheth always ate at the king's table. Why is it so important? Why is it so significant? Well, several commentators get their knickers in a twist about this because they can't work out why we're told in verse 10 that Mephibosheth will be provided by farmland and then told that he's going to eat at the king's table as well. Do you see the the little conundrum? He's got all this land. He doesn't need to eat at the king's table. But of course, that completely misses the point. Eating at the king's table is not about getting a free meal. It's about becoming part of the family of the king. Meals in the Bible are always about fellowship. It's about taken into the personal life of the king himself. This is far bigger than all the land he was given. This is about starting out as an enemy and becoming a son. And if you look at verse 11, it is nothing less than adoption. It is about taking this dead dog, this useless, hopeless, bottom-of-the-pile remnant of your enemy, someone who has no claim even on your mercy, let alone that he should enter your family home and sit around your table like one of your own children. And so the narrator wants us to stand back and be amazed at the superabundant, 
counterintuitive, countercultural kindness of King David at this point. But notice how this account ends with a slightly strange repetition in verse 13. And he was crippled in both feet. Why does the narrator tell us that again? Well, I mentioned earlier that the word translated crippled in verse 3 is based on the word struck. But here, a different word is used. And if you've got another version of the Bible, it might well be translated as lame. Not a word we use much these days. For those of you who are here for the 2 Samuel series earlier, you may remember that that word lame was used in chapter 5 as a word of exclusion. The lame and the blind were never allowed into the city of David which we saw then was not kind of against lame and blind people, but it was an ironic reference to the Jebusites, who would joke that David's soldiers were as scary as lame and blind people before David's soldiers then attacked and overthrew them. Don't worry if you didn't get that. The point is that the word lame in 2 Samuel has been a word for exclusion. And so verse 13 is a reminder. Here is someone who is doubly lame. He is lame in every sense of the word. And this is a reminder of what has changed in the kingdom since David took the throne. That the blind and the lame, the weak and the despised, the excluded and the left behind, are not just shown mercy, but are honoured and lifted up and treated like sons. This is what the kingdom of God is like. Well, we're going to see as we read on that such a kingdom will not last forever. After David, the kingdom will split. And as you read on in the book of 1 Kings and 2 Kings and 1 Chronicles and 2 Chronicles, you'll see that actually it becomes more of a kingdom of cruelty than kindness. A kingdom of unrighteousness instead of righteousness. A kingdom of injustice instead of justice. A kingdom of greed instead of generosity. In other words, the nation of Israel begins to look more and more like the world we are used to. So that by the time we get to those chapters of the Bible, we feel actually this is a bit more normal. This is a world we recognize. Greed rather than kindness. Cruelty rather than generosity. But the little glimpse has been provided. The little bottle of perfume. And it's just enough for the prophets that come later to look back And look ahead, as the prophets do, to look back and say, wasn't it great? And to look ahead and say, won't it be even greater? Have a look, for example, at Isaiah 35 on the screen. When Isaiah, thinking about David's kingdom, looks ahead to a greater kingdom, and he says, there the lame will leap like a deer, and the mute tongue shout for joy. 
Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert and the ransom of the Lord will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them and sorrow and singing will flee away. Now you may remember that David entered Jerusalem back in chapter 6 just like that. Dancing and singing. Unlike Mephibosheth who enters the kingdom leaping and trembling. And Isaiah is saying, one day, all who recognize themselves as spiritually lame, with nothing to offer on their own, who come limping into the kingdom, can come dancing and singing with heads held high, all because of the kindness of God. And when Isaiah said that, he was looking ahead to great David's greatest son, Jesus Christ who himself one day told a story in which the poor and the blind, the crippled and the lame, those who have no claim on God's kindness, are invited to eat at the king's table in the banquet of God, treated not as enemies, but as sons and daughters, invited to eat forever at the king's table. Well, there is two Samuel Chapter 9, a little glimpse of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. But as we conclude, I want to return to that experience I told you about at the beginning. An experience I had 36 years ago that from a human point of view was nothing remarkable at all. But it changed my life forever. What was it about my friend who first introduced me to Jesus that I noticed? What was it about those intriguing Christians I met as a 12-year-old boy who seemed so different to the world at large? After all, Christians don't have a monopoly on kindness, do they? In fact, kindness is one of the things that everyone can agree on is a good thing. It's something we all know and value when we see it. I'd experienced it myself growing up in what I would have called a kind family. Isn't it a little bit over the top to claim? Isn't it even a little bit unkind to claim that you can never experience true kindness unless you come into contact with Christians? What was so special about them? Well, it's simply this, that they themselves had met the king of kindness and that changes everything. You see, where does this kindness actually come from? You might look around the culture and say, well, it comes from our history. It comes from what we're taught from our parents. It comes from inside us. It comes from some innate sort of evolutionary spark. But no, I want to suggest not. I want to suggest that this kindness that we so easily take for granted actually comes from the very heart of God. For David, it came from experiencing the kindness of God himself in the form of a promise. A promise of sonship, of safety from enemies forever, a place at the banqueting table in the end. And for us, that same kindness has now come to us in Great David's greatest son, Jesus Christ. 
But here's the thing that we need to grasp. It comes at a moment that from a human point of view looks like nothing remarkable at all. It comes at the moment when a man called Jesus, a descendant of David, was hung on a cross to die. Because that was the moment he submitted himself to the judgment of God that we saw in chapter 8, the severity of God. The severity of God that we deserve for our unkindness. It was at that moment when he died on the cross that he submitted himself to the severity of God for every unkind act that every unkind man and every unkind woman has ever done and said. So that through him we can receive the kindness of God and be lavished with his grace. This is what it takes for dead Dogs who deserve nothing to be so lifted up that they get to eat at the king's table as sons and daughters forever. And once you've experienced that kindness, God begins to work in you. And by his spirit, he produces the fruit of kindness so that you become somebody who wants to show the kindness that you have received. I think this is one of the reasons that Christian churches have stood out in any age of church history. And particularly in those times when society is marked by unkindness. As we reject our Christian foundations, as we become more and more atheistic as a culture, as a society. The vacuum is not being filled by some kind of happy, loving atheist, but by fear and cruelty. That is the fruit of atheism. But if the kindness of the Spirit of God is the fruit of the Spirit, then Christians have an extraordinary opportunity to stand out and be different just by being kind. So can I encourage you this morning, if you're a Christian... To pause, as I've done this week, and to think about the ways you get to show the kindness of God. This is actually something that is quite simple. We don't have to go to outer Mongolia to achieve this. You don't have to be clever or gifted. Why not just determine to be kind? Why don't you determine this week to be the kindest member of your team at work, to be the kindest resident in your flat, to be the kindest neighbor in your street. Begin where David begins, opening your home, sharing your table with those who do not have a right to it, who cannot return the favor. And ask yourself this question. Do you think if a 12-year-old boy were to look at your life, they would be struck by a model of other person-centered generosity and sacrifice. We don't have to win the culture war, but we just crack on as a church and be kind in an increasingly unkind world. But of course, that begins by coming to the king of kindness himself 
And if you've never experienced the kindness of God, this morning would be a great morning to do so. To come to Jesus like Mephibosheth, lame, unworthy, undeserving, to limp into the kingdom now so that one day you can come dancing and singing into the great banquet on the last day and glorify his name forever. So look with me at the bottom of the sheet and let me read Titus chapter 3 and then I'm going to pray. At one time we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Saviour appeared, he saved us. Not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Saviour, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we acknowledge that we are exactly as this passage describes. Foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved. With no goodness, merit, worthiness or right to your kingdom. But your kindness has come to us in Christ. The King of kindness who has lavished us with kindness in his death on the cross. We pray that you would forgive us every unkind act. And we pray that we now might rest in the kindness of your promise, which alone can bring us into your eternal kingdom. And we pray that by your spirit you'll change us to live with kindness in this unkind world so that others may see and give you glory. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen.